You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right. Do I need to... You guys hear me fine, I assume. Right on. All right, so go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Verses 14 through 22, and you can use those nice black hardback pew Bibles that are in there. Uh, you're welcome. Merry Christmas. Yes, that's from me and Autumn. Uh, CSI, I expect you all to thank me personally, individually, after church. Um, that, I'm, I'm kidding. Seriously, though, Merry Christmas to the church from me and Autumn. We thought those were pretty nice little Bibles that we found for cheap because we're broke. Uh, but anyway, yeah, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. As you can guess, we're finishing up our series uh, on the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Uh, and tonight we are looking at the letter to the church in Laodicea. Now, we are Americans, right? Don't, don't worry, right? This isn't going to be some kind of patriotic service. We don't do that here, right? Like, think like Black Panther, right? We don't do that here. Um, <laughs> I've been a part of those before. It make my blood boil, so don't worry about that. Uh, but but we're, we are Americans, right? And that means that we have had the ideas of independence and self-sufficiency and pride drilled into us since day one, have we not? Right, independence Day. We celebrate once a year our rebellion right, against uh, England. But in America, this independence thing that we love, we love the story of the self-made man, don't we? Right? The, the guy who came from nothing but through hard work and perseverance now has everything. Right? We love that idea. Uh, the, you know what I'm talking about. You see those stories, you hear those things, and you think, man, that guy didn't need anyone's help, and he did it all on his own. He pulled himself up by his own bootstraps and handled his business. Right? And that's the way to do it, and, and I want to be like that. Right? Most Americans love that self-made man story. Everyone likes to be independent and self-sufficient, and generally, we don't like asking for help. We don't like admitting that we're weak. We don't like admitting that we need someone to do something for us. We're proud. Right? I mean, think in your own personal life. How often have you been too proud to ask someone for help? And then you ended up probably ruining something trying to do it by yourself whenever you should have asked someone for help. We're proud. We don't like to ask for help. And I think that this American mentality of independence and self-sufficiency and pride has infected the church in America. Uh, you talk to many uh, professing Christians, self-professed Christians, and they'll explain Christianity a little bit like this. Jesus got me in the door by his life, death, and resurrection, but now it's up to me to do the rest. Right? Or you'll hear this. Jesus did his part on the cross, and now it's up to you whether or not his work will be effective to save Right? So while there's a little bit of a need for grace and a little bit of a need for Jesus, ultimately everything rests on the individual to will himself and work hard to be saved. And in much modern Christian religion, there is a huge emphasis on what you do rather than every Christian having a huge dependency on Christ every single day, every moment of every day. So we can see that these very Western, right, very American ideas of independence, self-sufficiency, and pride have infiltrated our thinking both in secular and religious spheres. Right? We, we often think that we're on our own. We're independent people. Um, and I'll just, cut to the I'll just cut to the chase on this. That kind of thinking is unbiblical and anti-gospel. Right? I remember... Remember whenever Barack Obama was talking to people and they said, yeah, that business you have, you didn't build that by yourself. He didn't know it, but he was being pretty biblical there. Right? There's no such thing as a self-made man. That, 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 that is a myth. That is a worldly concept. No one has ever gotten something purely because of hard work. No one has ever gotten something purely because they willed themselves to achieve their goals. That's a lie. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every Good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Everything you have, listen to me, everything that you have now, have had in the past, or will ever have in the future, is a gift from God. 
Without his decree, you wouldn't have it. Right? Everything belongs to him. The Bible says the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to God. It means God owns everything. And everything that you have is a gift from him. I'm not denying human responsibility and that, yes, you worked your job, whatever. I'm not denying that. But essentially, whenever you get down to it, it's of God's grace that you have whatever it is that you have. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? So why then do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, the answer is nothing. Everything you have has been given to you by God. And not only in material, worldly things, but spiritually. There is not a single day that you don't need the shed blood of Christ to cover your sins. There's not a day that you don't need Christ's prayers and mediation on your behalf. There's not a day that you don't need His grace. You're not living this Christian life on your own. In fact, if it was up to you, and it was in your strength, you wouldn't wake up a Christian tomorrow. You don't have that kind of strength. We are dependent upon Christ for everything, whether it be spiritual or material. We are completely dependent upon Him. This, this idea of self-sufficiency is a cancer to the church, and it is a lie from hell. This lie of self-sufficiency and independence causes us to focus on ourselves and what we do and not on Christ and His grace towards us and His kindness toward us. So we, the people of God, the church, must always be on guard against self-sufficiency and pride. Because if we're not, it's going to infect our thinking and make us proud and cause us to forget our wholesale reliance on the Lord Jesus. And that was the problem with the church in Laodicea. That was their problem. A little bit of background for you. Laodicea was an incredibly wealthy city, right? Just tons of cash, gold everywhere. This is a very, very, very wealthy city, arguably the, the wealthiest of all that were mentioned in these seven letters. They were known throughout the Roman Empire for their banks, right? So again, lots of gold everywhere. They were known uh, for their banking industry. They were known for their textile industry, right? They produced this like sleek, Black wool, think like the first name brand shirts ever, right? Black wool says Laodicea across the front, right? They were known for their textile industry, and they were known for their medical school, right? And their medical school, uh, people from all over the Roman Empire would come to Laodicea to get this eye salve. And I'm not saying it would make blind people see or anything like that, but if you had some kind of disease of the eye uh, or some kind of discomfort, this eye salve would most likely take care of it, right? So this city was loaded, industry out the yang. It was so wealthy, actually, that in 60 A.D., when an earthquake destroyed the city, an earthquake destroyed the city in 60 A.D., they rebuilt their city themselves with no help. No help whatsoever. Right? Now, you might not know this, but Rome had something like FEMA back then. Right? So if there was like a big natural disaster, the Roman Empire, Rome would actually send money to that city to help them rebuild. And they offered to help Laodicea, but Laodicea said, no, we can handle this ourselves. We don't need any help from Rome. And they handled it on their own. It's amazing how much money that this city had. Right? So again, this, this city, you can see from all that, this city was a proud city. A proud city. They wouldn't even accept help from the Roman headquarters. All right? it, its pagan trade guilds were strong. The economy was booming. They basically lacked nothing. They viewed themselves as independent and self-sufficient, and they were very proud. Right? And this was the attitude of the city as a whole. And this attitude had affected the church, or rather infected the church in Laodicea. And because of this ungodly attitude of self-reliance and self-sufficiency, the Lord Jesus has John write a letter of rebuke to this church. I want to make a note here. If, as you read these two chapters in Revelation, you'll notice of all the seven letters, this one is the most negative. There is nothing positive mentioned whatsoever in this letter. Right? David preached the other negative letter uh, two weeks ago, Dave Allison, the letter to the church in Sardis. And in, in that letter, there was at least one small positive thing in there. Jesus says, you have a remnant of people who haven't stained their garments yet. Right? You have a, a small faithful remnant left in that church in Sardis, but not so here with Laodicea. This is the most negative letter. Nothing positive is mentioned whatsoever. And Jesus comes down hard on these Christians. 
Right? He's not messing around in this letter. It is incredibly harsh. He rebukes them sternly and then calls them to repentance and renewed relationship with him. But as you're going to see, as harsh as this letter is in its first few verses, in this letter you're going to see that the Lord Jesus is patient. Right? I don't want us to just focus on how bad the Laodiceans messed up and and what their problem was, but I want us to see this evening that the Lord Jesus is patient and gracious and merciful towards his people. He reminds this backslidden church of his great love for them and promises a renewal of fellowship to the repentant. So my, my prayer for this sermon throughout the week has been that through this letter we would evaluate ourselves. And that in doing so, we would deny any form of pride or self-sufficiency that we might have in our hearts. And that we would run to the Lord Jesus, acknowledging that we need him for literally everything. Because we do. And there's never a moment that we don't. So with that being said, let's read Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write... The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our great God, who calls all the scriptures to be written for our benefit and learning, God, I pray that you would cause us to truly hear your words this evening and to learn from them and feed on them that we might embrace and forever hold on to our blessed hope of everlasting life that you have given us in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So as we've seen six other times in these letters, Jesus starts by describing himself in a way that's going to collar the rest of the letter. Right? It's really important stuff, so we're going to spend a little bit of time in verse 14. He says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, or Amen if you're pretentious, but uh, we're from southern Ohio, so it's Amen. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So Jesus calls himself the Amen, right? which is a reference to Isaiah. <laughs> Again, there's tons of references to, to the book of Isaiah in, this, in the book of Revelation. But it's a reference to Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, where God in Hebrew is called the God of Amen. Right? But what does Amen mean? Well, um, it doesn't mean you can sit down now. <laughs> and it doesn't mean it's time to eat. Um, although that's probably what we thought growing up whenever everyone said Amen. You could either sit down or you could eat now. Um, but Amen means truth. Right? God... In our translation, the ESV, in Isaiah 65, 16, it says the God of truth, even though the Hebrew says the God of amen. So amen means truth. So before, if you remember this, if you ever read the, the parables, which I hope you're reading the Bible, the parables that the Lord Jesus would give, uh, he would often say, in our translation, truly, truly, I say to you, right? Or if you grew up like I did, verily, verily, I say unto you, right? What he's saying is, this is the truth. What I'm getting ready to tell you is true. This parable is going to teach you something that you need to know, so you need to listen. So here, Jesus is saying, tell them that the Amen writes this letter to them. Right? He says, I am the Amen. That is to say, I am the truth, which is really a common thing that we call Jesus. 
right? In John's gospel, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of truth itself. There is no truth apart from him. Anything that would present itself as truth that contradicts what the Lord Jesus says is by default a lie because he is the God of truth and there is no lie in him and he never lies. All that comes from his holy mouth is to be taken as absolute truth because it is. Again, he himself is the truth. He is absolute reality. He is the amen. And he says he is the faithful and true witness. Again, Jesus is declaring... He is absolutely trustworthy. Again, the amen, the faithful and true witness, all of this overlaps a little bit. He's saying, I am faithful and honest in my witness. That is to say that whenever Jesus testifies, right, whenever he bears witness about something, it's absolutely credible. He's completely true in all that he says. So while on earth, Jesus gave witness to who God is, right? He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, He gave perfect witness, true, faithful witness to who the Father is. And now, as as he has ascended to heaven, when he gives witness about a church, it's just as true. So whatever Christ says is proper and right. When he bears witness about something, it is the truth. And he calls himself the beginning of God's creation. Now this description, the beginning of God's creation, contrary to what a Jehovah's Witness would tell you, does not mean that Jesus is a creation. All right, let's get that real clear. Jesus is not a created being. A lot of Christians, believe it or not, will get get that messed up and they'll get confused. Jesus was not created. He is the uncreated Son of God. In fact, if you reread the Gospel of John chapter 1, it says he created all things, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he is the uncreated creator. That word here that we translate the beginning of God's creation, that Greek word is arche. It's where we get the word monarch, right? The ruler of God's creation, right? But honestly, the beginning is a fair way to translate that too. And this description that Jesus is the beginning of God's creation actually sounds a lot like what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians, right? And just so you know, Colossae, where the Colossians are from, is really close to Laodicea. And Paul actually instructed the Colossians to give that letter to the church in Laodicea so it could be read there, right? So I want to read a a portion uh, that you already know from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. It sounds really close to what Jesus says about himself here in Revelation. He, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's what Paul says in Colossians. So to put it in a common phrase, what Jesus is saying here, saying I am the beginning of God's creation, the ruler of God's creation. To put that in a common phrase, Jesus is telling them, hey guys, the sun rises and sets on me. Right? I'm it. I'm it. He is over all things, and he rules over them all. Nothing exists apart from him. All things are held together by him. All things are made by him and for him. All things, including the Laodiceans, are dependent on him. He is the center of the universe. Right? So why would Jesus, why have I spent all this time? Right, let, let, let's, I want you to see this. Why would Jesus describe himself this way in this particular letter? That's the question, right? Beautiful, Dave. You explained a bunch of stuff to us. What's that bear on this letter? Well, one, he says that he is the embodiment of truth and always gives faithful witness. So he reminds the Laodiceans of this because he is about to testify against them. I'm the faithful and true witness. I am the embodiment of truth, and I'm about to give testimony against you, Laodiceans. And what he's going to testify against the Laodiceans is the polar opposite of what they think about themselves. 
right? So it's like he's saying, hey, I don't care what you think about yourself. I am the truth. I'm right and you're wrong. You need to humble yourself before my words because I am the amen. And secondly, Jesus says he's the beginning of all of God's creation. And he says this to a church that has forgotten how much they depend on him. A church that has grown arrogant and self-deceived. They're delusional. They think they're independent. Jesus is telling them whenever he says, I am the beginning of God's creation, he's saying nobody is self-sufficient. I hold it all together. I am the sovereign and nothing happens apart from me. You need me. But then Jesus moves into his rebuke and description of the church, verses 15 and 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus says that the problem with the Laodiceans is that they're lukewarm. Right? Now, traditionally, right, I'm going to ruffle some feathers here, I would assume. Traditionally, these verses have been interpreted to refer to spiritual zeal. Right? You've probably heard this before. Right? They weren't on fire for Jesus, right? which would mean hot. But they didn't quite hate Jesus either, which would be cold. They were somewhere in the middle between hating him and loving him. Right? They were lukewarm. And Jesus says, I wish you were one or the other. Right? I remember uh, hearing preachers when I was growing up, they would say things like, Jesus would rather you hate him and live completely for the devil than be a lukewarm pew sitter. Right? Anyone else ever hear this text preached that way? He'd rather you be all for the devil or all for him. Just pick a side and stick with one. Right? So traditionally, people have understood this to mean that the church in Laodicea has lost its zeal for Christ and were merely externally religious. And Jesus is telling them, pick a side. Right, you're either for me or against me. I hate lukewarmness. I would respect you more if you would just be an all-in-all-out sinner. All right? That's how people have historically understood this passage. But I don't think that that's the right understanding of these verses. And let me explain why. Right? So bear with me. These people are Christians. Right? These Laodiceans are Christians. And you won't find anywhere in the Bible where God commands his people to hate him. You won't find it. Right? And you might be thinking, but how are they Christians if Jesus is rebuking them so hard? Well, hear me out. Jesus calls them a church. To the church in Laodicea. The angel of the church in Laodicea. A church has Christians in it. Right? We're Baptists. We believe in a regenerate church membership. Okay, so if Jesus is going to call them a church, there have to be Christians there. So again, the fact that he calls them a church is huge. Now, I don't deny that these Christians were backslidden. And when I say backslidden, I don't mean that in the Southern Ohio way. I don't believe that they had lost their salvation, because that's not possible. But they had, I mean it in a Puritan sense, they had slid back into former ungodly patterns of life. They had fallen back into, sinful way of, into a sinful way of thinking. They were backslidden, but they were Christians. Again, Jesus calls them a church. And it is possible for Christians to fall into grievous sin. It is possible for the people of God to fall into grievous sin. Don't forget Peter. Don't forget King David. I think those two examples are enough. It is possible for believers to fall into grievous sin, but they will eventually repent. So Jesus is giving them this letter so that they might repent. So again, they are a church. And Christians can fall into bad, bad sin. But not only that, not only does Christ call them a church, but if you skip down to verse 19, Jesus says he loves them. Now we know that Jesus loves his elect with this kind of love. He gives common grace to all men, but he loves his people only. If you disagree with that, I would have you read Psalm 5 and Psalm 7 where God says, I hate the wicked. I'm angry with them every day. He loves his people. So these backslidden Christians are still Christians. And Jesus is not telling his bride to hate him. Husbands, would you ever look your wife in the eye and say, I wish you'd just hate me. You would never do that. right? You love your spouse. Well, maybe you would do that and you need to repent. I don't know where you're at, Brandon. I saw you look over. But this is one of those occasions. Right? In reading this passage, this is one of those occasions where if we don't know some historical context we're going to miss what the scriptures are saying. Right? So we need to know some ancient geography. Right? 
Now, nearby Laodicea, right there, a city, nearby Laodicea, um, there were a couple of towns with their own water sources. Okay, there was Colossae, think letter to the Colossians. There was Colossae nearby, which was a town that was known for having cold, refreshing drinking water. And likewise, another local town called Hierapolis was known for its hot springs, right? And people said that the hot springs had healing properties, right? Hot water would make you feel better. But Laodicea, for all of its wealth and all of its splendor, right, it didn't have its own water source. It had, the, the city of Laodicea was made because it was in a convenient trade spot, not because there was a good nearby water source like most towns and cities. So what Laodicea had to do was they had to pipe water in from other places, and these pipelines would go for miles, right? So by the time that the water got to Laodicea, it wasn't hot anymore, and it wasn't cold anymore. It was lukewarm. It was stagnant. It was stale. And not only that, but after traveling that far, at least four to six miles, after, after traveling that far through these pipes, the water becomes tainted with all kinds of minerals and sediment, right? So the, the water was absolutely disgusting, by the time that it got to Laodicea. It was tepid, nasty, stagnant, disgusting water. Right? And we actually have some historic documents from that time uh, where ancient writers talked about, hey, if you drink too much water from Laodicea, it'll make you vomit. Don't drink too much water in one shot from there because it's going to make you sick. So knowing that, I think Jesus is making a reference to their water in Laodicea. I think in the first couple verses of this rebuke, he's saying, I wish you were hot or cold. Hot water is good for something. Cold water is good for something. But you, you make me sick. You make me sick. You're just like your water. You're disgusting. And Jesus says that if they stay this way, he's going to spit them out of his mouth. Or he's going to literally vomit them out of his mouth. Now, I know the text, if you read it closely, the text says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Um, this is a threat. Okay, some people read that and they'll say, well, he's passing judgment on them. He's saying, I will. It's a certainty. I don't think that's the case. He hasn't passed a final judgment on them. Again, verse 19, he calls them to repent, which means that there's still time to repent before he vomits them out of his mouth. Okay, so in light of the context, we see the sense of the phrase, I will spit you out. The sense is, I am about to spit you out of my mouth because you are disgusting in my sight. You make me sick. But if they will not repent, they can expect to be rejected by Christ on the day of judgment. What a sobering word from our Lord Jesus. A church can fall so hard and be so negligent of Christ that they become disgusting to him. This kind of rebuke is intended to make us sit up and listen and to pray for Christ's grace that we would never, ever become like Laodicea. Right? Like imagine, seriously, I was thinking about this this past week and, and, and honestly it brought me to tears. Imagine getting a letter from the Lord Jesus that reads, Dear David, I know your works and you make me sick. Repent. Imagine getting that letter, because that's what he's saying to them. So think on these stern words from the Lord Jesus, and let them lead you to repentance, because that's the purpose of this letter, okay? This is serious. He's not wasting ink. He's not wasting his breath whenever he rebukes them this harshly. He's serious. But what is it, right? That's the big question. What is it about the Laodicean church that has made them so disgusting in the sight of Jesus? What is lukewarmness? What has made them lukewarm to Christ? Well, the next verse tells us. It starts with the word for, which means it's explanatory. It's going to tell us what's wrong. Right? Verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Right? In these 13 words, Jesus tells us what's wrong with the Laodiceans. But again, before we go any further, I want you to remember the city was known for its wealth. And from this statement, we see that the Christians there were wealthy too. They say, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. The Christians there were rich as well. Uh, but I think there's a few layers of meaning for us here to see why Jesus is rebuking them. This, this rebuke is very deep. It's multifaceted. The first thing we see in this rebuke is that these Christians were arrogant. Notice, I 
am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Right? This repetition of eyes tell us that, that they were arrogant and full of pride. Right? That they, they thought that they had accumulated this wealth all on their own. Right? Apparently, they had forgotten what we talked about in the introduction. Right? That the only reason that they had this wealth was because Christ had decided to bless them financially and give it to them. But what did they think? They thought to themselves, I don't need Jesus to do anything for me. I don't need to thank him for anything. I have acquired this wealth for myself. I am sufficient to meet my own needs. I worked for it. It's mine, and I don't need him. I need nothing. So I think they were arrogant. That's one thing we see. A second thing, in these three phrases, we see that they were focused on their worldly wealth. Again, they were worldly. They were consumed with acquiring more stuff and making themselves more comfortable. Now consider this. As you read the other letters, right? these past seven weeks that we've been in this series, as you read the other letters, in the letters, the churches are mentioned as being poor and being persecuted, but not in Laodicea. Not in Laodicea. This church is known for its wealth, and there is not a single mention of persecution from anyone, pagans, Jews, nobody. The poor and persecuted churches were poor, because they refused to join the idolatrous pagan trade guilds and they refused to worship the emperor and they continued to preach the gospel and proclaim the truth and hold fast to the truth of the word of God. And it cost them. But not here in Laodicea. Here in Laodicea they were rich and they had good jobs and they had a ton of money. Why? I think it stands to reason that they had compromised and sold out Christ in order to be more comfortable and make more money. They compromised their testimony to Christ and put him on the back burner and were more focused on worldly things than eternal things. They were more focused on worldly wealth and accumulating possessions and being comfortable than they were on spiritual matters. In their pursuit of earthly wealth, they had become apathetic to Christ and they neglected him. If I could sum up their thinking, it would be this. I need this stuff more than I need him. I need this stuff more than I need Jesus. I need to focus on the world more than I need to focus on my relationship to the Lord Jesus. I'll call on him when I need him. But I don't need him right now. I need something else. I need nothing. What are they saying? I'm rich. I need to focus on the world's goods. I need something aside from Christ. And then thirdly, and this one might seem strange to you, but hear me out. I think this verse shows us that they had become spiritually arrogant. They'd become self-righteous to some degree. And I say that because there's a parallel between this verse and Hosea chapter 12, verse 8. I'll read it to you. Don't worry about flipping there. Hosea chapter 12, verse 8. Ephraim has said, Ephraim is another way to say Israel. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. And in all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. So Israel was in a similar position that the church in Laodicea was. And God, through Hosea, is rebuking them. And what do they say? I am rich. I found wealth for myself. And in all my labors, in all the works of my hands, they can't find any sin in me. Right? And a lot of commentators see a parallel here, and I see it as well. The Laodiceans said, I need nothing. They had become so arrogant in their wealth that they had begun to think highly of themselves spiritually. Right, which might sound strange to you, but this happens more often than you think. Consider this line of thinking. I have all this stuff. I must be a good person or I wouldn't have it. Hmm? Tell me you've never met someone like that. I must be doing something right. Look at this small empire I've built for myself. God must be pleased with me and how I'm living. Look at all the stuff that I have. Look how well that I'm doing financially. Right? Again, they'd become self-righteous, thinking that they were good on their own, like the people of Israel. And and Hosea says, there's no, in the works of my hands, you can't find any sin in me. Maybe like so many professing Christians today, they thought, Christ got me through the door, but I'll take it from here. I needed forgiveness at one point in my life, but I'm pretty good now, and I don't sin very much anymore, and I'm pretty much good to go. I'll call on Christ when I think that I've done something wrong, but I don't think that's going to happen. 
I need nothing. What would that include? The grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus on a regular basis. I need nothing was their attitude. They thought they no longer needed the forgiveness of sins. That they no longer needed Christ's righteousness imputed to them. That they no longer needed his meditation on the, or a mediation on their behalf. That they could take it from here. We're good, thanks. We're good people. You might be thinking to yourself, how can true Christians think like this and do, stuff, and, and do this kind of stuff? Right? I mean, seriously, like, that's, what, that's what you think. Because Jesus calls them a church and says that he loves them, so that must mean that they're Christians. But how in the world do true Christians think like this? How in the world do true Christians act like this and, and, and develop this kind of an attitude? But let me ask you, if you're thinking that, let me ask you a question in return. Is this not you at different points in your life? Is this not you? Have there not been times in your life where you gain a high opinion of yourself and think little of the gospel? I'm doing pretty good, thanks. Hey man, is there any, any, anything you need to, con, need to confess? Any, anything I can be praying for you about for your sanctification? Nah, man, I'm good. Really? Tell me you're not thinking highly of yourself. And you're spending little time thinking on the gospel in those times of your life. In those times, you're spending no real time grateful for the imputed righteousness of Christ because you don't really see yourself as the depraved wretch that you are because in your heart you think, I'm doing pretty good right now. I need nothing. Or have there not been times when you've pursued worldly pleasures and, and desires of the world at the expense of faithfulness to the Lord Jesus and his glory? And compromised and said, yeah, I'll, I'll catch up on that later, but this is more important right now. I need to pursue this. Whether it's family, whether it's school, whether it's a relationship, whether it's work, whatever it is, I need to focus on this, and I'll catch up with Christ when I need him, but this is more important right now. Or have you not looked at your possessions and all the material blessings that come from the Lord and thought to yourself arrogantly, look at what I've done, and look at what I've earned by myself. Look at this small empire I've made. Look at the work of my hands. Rather than getting on your knees and thanking God, Lord, you've given me a family and a house and a car and a job and I have food in my refrigerator and everything you've given to me. But instead of falling to your knees in worship, you say, I deserve this and I've earned this. More often than we care to admit, we are Laodicea. Jesus smacks them and us back to reality in the next line. He says, you say, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What he's saying here is, apart from me, you are wretched. In and of yourself, you have nothing. You have nothing without me. You are nothing without me. And you don't even realize it anymore. You have such a high opinion of yourself, not realizing you're wretched. He's saying you have forgotten everything that matters. You've forgotten the truth. The faithful and true witness, the amen of God says this. Here's what you really are. And you've forgotten what matters. You've forgotten that all we have has been given by Christ. That we need him more than any earthly comforts. And that we're only saved from God's wrath and hell because of him and his grace given to us. Like our Lord says in John's gospel, and we're going to read here after the sermon. I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And I might add, you have nothing and are nothing apart from him. Jesus, who is the beginning of God's creation, says, you need me. You need me, but you've forgotten. And Jesus then goes on to give some advice in light of the fact that we are nothing and have nothing without him. In verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I don't think that we need to spiritualize all three of those things and see one facet or another in all three of those things that he listed, gold, white garments, and eye salve. But I think what he's doing is he's telling us that since we have nothing apart from him, we ought to go to him and buy from him all the things that we need. 
He says, you're nothing without me. So I counsel you. My recommendation is that you come to me and buy all the things that you need because you have nothing without me. But here's the paradox. How in the world are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked people going to buy gold, white garments, and medicine? <laughs> How in the world are you going to buy that when Jesus says, yeah, you have nothing and you are nothing? This buying is a reference to Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's what he's saying here to them. He's saying, just come. Just come. Come and admit you need me, and I'll be sufficient for you. I'm all that you really need. If you come to me in repentance and faith, I'll just give it to you. I'll give you what you really need. I'll give you spiritual blessings. So let all the poor, those who see that they're wretched and miserable, go to Christ. He will charge us nothing. He will ask for no works. If we'll only come to him, he'll give us all that we really need. That is to say, he will give us himself. He'll give us himself. And in him we receive everything else that matters. And we need not compromise and chase after the world. We need not rely on our own strength and will and works. Because Christ is offering us everything. Buy from me. You who have no money, come and buy without price. Come and take it. I just give it. It's a gift of grace. And all of these blessings are free to us because Christ purchased them on his cross. In his great love for us, he bought us everything with his own blood. So he says, come, it's already paid for. I will give it to you. And Jesus then goes on to say something that's just shocking. In light of this hard rebuke that we read earlier. Verse 19 shocks us to our core. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. When you read that verse, can you not see the long-suffering of our Lord? His patience. Truly, Jesus Christ is the God of all patience. Even after the Laodiceans had been so arrogant and sinned so grievously against Him in neglecting Him and pursuing other things, even though they had been so self-righteous, Jesus says in this verse, I love you. Those whom I love, I discipline and reprove. He says, I love you. The whole reason that Jesus was so stern and rebuked them so sharply was because he loves them. Parents, do you not do this with your own children? Right? You spank them on the rear end and sit down with them and sternly talk with them about their disobedience and call them to repentance. And you do this, why? Because you love them. Because you love them. Because you know that if they keep heading down the path that they're on, it's going to end with their ruin. How much more for our Lord Jesus? Christian, Jesus loves you more than your parents ever could. Period. He loves you more. And he knows that the road of self-sufficiency and arrogance and pride will lead to your eternal damnation. So he warns and he threatens and rebukes us in our sin because he loves us. Jesus is so kind and patient with such sin-sick, backslidden Christians, is he not? He's so kind to us. right? That, that's our theme as his people, isn't it? Jesus has been so kind to me. He has loved me and shown me infinitely more grace than I deserve. I am a Laodicean. And Jesus says, I love you. He's been so kind to us. This patience reminds me of a song that was sung often in the church I was raised in. And my sister will probably laugh. It says, over and over he molds me and makes me. Into his likeness he fashions the clay. A vessel of honor I am today. All because Jesus didn't throw the clay away. Now there may be a few theological issues with that chorus. But the main point rings true. 
Jesus doesn't throw us away. He's the God of patience. He is never finished with those vessels of honor that have been predestined to glory. This sin-sick church, he says, I love you. Now be zealous and repent. I love you. He's patient and kind, and this kindness is meant to lead us to that repentance. And in this verse, he's calling us to turn from our pride and self-reliance and renew our trust in him. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And before we go any further, I want to make it plain, contrary to what we all thought growing up, this verse is not an evangelistic verse, right? You might have saw it on the back of gospel tracts with that weird picture of Jesus knocking on a door, like, please, let me in. Um, that, that, yeah, like, please, get saved. That's not what this verse is about. Um, it's a call, rather, it's not a call for unbelievers to be converted. That's ripping this verse out of context, kicking and screaming. Right? Remember, Jesus says this to who? The church in Laodicea. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and he's talking to Christians. Right? Just a fun fact for you. There's a correlation between this verse and Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2. And in Song of Solomon, in that verse, the bridegroom knocks on the bride's door and says, let me in, <laughs> open to me. Right? But she hesitates. So he's saying, let me in. I'm already in relationship with you. I'm already in covenant with you. Now let me in. This verse is, is Jesus calling his people back to himself. He's not telling them, hey, Laodiceans, get saved. He's saying, no, renew your relationship with me. Repent and enjoy fellowship with me is what he's saying. Now what I'm getting ready to say, I stole straight from Vody Bauckham, all right, because I'm not that good of a preacher. But this verse is so beautiful for us. Because we've just been told to go to Christ and buy from him. Right? In verse 18, buy from me. We've been told to turn back to him and repent. And in verse 20, it's like that we're getting up from our seat and we throw our coat on and we're heading for the door saying, I'm going back to him. I'm going to Jesus. And Jesus says, sit down. Where are you going? I'm already here. I'm already at the door. I have pursued you, sinner. I've run you down in my love, and you don't have to go anywhere. Is this not our Lord? He says, I'm already here. He doesn't ask us to go anywhere. He doesn't ask us to do some kind of work. He doesn't ask us to do anything meritorious. Right? What he says is, I'm here at the door. Admit that you need me, and I'm yours. That's what it means to open the door. He says, admit that you're not, self, or admit that you're not self-sufficient, and that you need me, and I'll give myself to you. All your sin, forgotten. Your past foolishness and pride, forgiven. Open to me and we will have restored communion. It's beautiful that our problem is that we're far from Christ in our hearts and Jesus comes to us. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is the gospel. Your problem is you're far from me, so I come to you. He says that if we open to him, he'll come in and eat with us. And that's a picture of intimate fellowship. It's a picture of a shared meal, of reconciliation and forgiveness and intimacy with our Lord, a restored friendship with him. And I can't help but see something of the Lord's Supper in this verse. I'll come in and dine with you and you with me. Some people might accuse me of making a stretch here, but regardless, the point stands. Jesus says here that he will come and dine with us. And the same thing is true of the Lord's Supper. Christ comes and shares a meal with us as we, what Paul says, we participate, we koinonia in him by faith. And what do we do at the Lord's table? Hear me out. This is going to be important whenever we take the supper here in a little while. What do we do at the Lord's table? We come in repentance, humbly acknowledging what? Exactly what Jesus says in this letter. We come saying in our hearts, I need him. We come in our hearts saying, I need his broken body and shed blood. I need his grace. I need him to strengthen me so that I can keep going. I can do nothing apart from him, and I need him. And Jesus says to us, if you acknowledge your need for me, you get me. And all the benefits of my work. He stands at the door of his sin-sick church 
and knocks. And the question is, will we lay down our pride and admit that we need him? How long will we believe the lie that we're self-sufficient? How long will we kick against the goads? He's right there. And the command is open and be reconciled. And finally and briefly, we come to the promises of the conqueror. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers is the one who continues to admit their need for Christ, who continues to trust him, who continues to come to him in humble reliance on his grace. And this conqueror will be granted to sit on Christ's throne as Christ sat on his father's throne after completing his work of salvation. This is a promise to us that we're going to rule with Christ in the age to come should we persevere to the end. It's a promise to the people of God, hear me, that you will sit at Christ's right hand and have intimate fellowship with him forever. This is the fellowship that we strive for. It's the fellowship that we long for and it's promised to us if we persevere. Not only that, but if you look at the verse that comes right before it, verse 20, Jesus offers us a foretaste of it now if we will open the door to him. Sit with me on my throne. We'll have fellowship and communion. If you open the door now, I'll come in and we'll dine together. So Christian, in closing, put away your arrogance. Put away the worldly sense of self-sufficiency. Right? Enough of this, I need nothing. Attitude, it's foolishness. Admit that you're dependent upon the Lord Jesus. That you need him for everything. That you're dependent upon him for your material well-being. That all that you have comes from the beginning of God's creation. Who has given it to you by grace. Admit that you need Christ's forgiveness every second of every minute of every hour of every day. Open the door to Christ and admit that you need him. And he says if you'll admit it, you'll have everything. And I'll be everything for you. So be zealous and repent. Because he's been too kind and patient for us to ignore such a love given to undeserving sinners like ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this text and for a proper understanding of it. Lord, often we we make ourselves vile in your sight through our self-reliance and self-dependence. God, grant to us that we would see our need of Christ. That we wouldn't be so foolish to say, I needed him at one point, but I think I've got it from here. God, save us from being crisis Christians who only come to you whenever we need something. But to be a people who look at you and say, I need everything every day from you. Grant to us humility, God, that we might live lives of gratitude and worship and praise and thanksgiving. Help us to worship you as you deserve. The one who holds everything together. And the God of patience who loves us in spite of our sin. We praise you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.